be picking up right where we left off in Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to tackle the first few verses today. Uh, this would probably be better if we could do it all in one sitting, but even though I've been inspired by Ezra's six-hour sermons, for the sake of our kids' workers, we're going to refrain from that today. So let me pray for us, and we'll get right to work. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and illuminate these texts to us. We pray that we be informed in our knowledge of Scripture, transformed by the renewing of our minds, conformed to the image of Christ, and recommissioned on the Great Commission. Lord, help me, frail as I am, to serve us well in this time. In Jesus' good name, amen. So where we pick up today, in verse 1, we have this. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, and with earth on their heads. Now, you may recall uh, last week we learned that uh, they've heard the word. Uh, it's a great time of revival and renewal has broken out among them. They are responding to God. And now we see that they are fa uh, with fasting and sackcloth in their response. Now, what in the world is going on here? Well, fasting uh, is a way to communicate in this context that the mourning over their sins, the, the seriousness of them, their understanding of them, and their deep need of forgiveness that comes only from God. Uh, and also the same idea there with sackcloth and earth on their heads. This would have been a type of very rough uh, clothing, almost like a potato sack kind of situation. Uh, and the fact that they were putting earth on their heads uh, probably illuminated that they were bowing down all the way to the ground, uh, or at least that they were taking some dirt and wiping it on their foreheads. And again, it was a way to show contrition, to show uh, their seriousness of their confession and their repentance, and that they were indeed hearing the weight of the convicting word of God. Now, look at the next verse. It says, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now, what we're talking about here uh, would seem very strange to us today, but this was something that was absolutely uh, needed at this time. And basically what they are doing is they are parsing out the crowd um, to, to separate the Israelites and those from other nations. And the problem here was not about geography, but rather idolatry. Not geography, but idolatry. And some of you who may have more exposure to the Old Testament, you may remember this practice that time and time and time again, God prohibited Israelites from intermarrying with people from other nations. And again, it wasn't about the geography, it was about the idolatry that came with it. And the problem was, every time that one of these Israelite men would marry uh, a wife from another nation, uh, invariably, she would bring her foreign gods with her, and then that man, that family, would be dragged away uh, into idolatry. Uh, you saw this time and time again. Uh, you saw it with Samson and Delilah. Uh, you saw it with Solomon. That was, uh, I think, the, the cause of his great downfall. And so since the, the point of Old Testament Israel was to call out from among the nations, uh, a group of people that were solely devoted to God himself and, uh, and focused on him, clearly it was a problem But when this intermarrying would happen because it would, uh, it would dilute their faith and bring in these foreign gods. 
So again, the problem is not geography, but rather idolatry. And so as part of their repentance, they are going back to uh, what God had called them to do. And you, when you mix in the sackcloth, the ashes, uh, the, uh, the fasting, and now this separation, you could see that God really is at work among these people. Next verse. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and for another quarter they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So this would have been probably three hours of confession and three hours of hearing the scripture. And when you take all this together today, I want to pull out two brief principles that I think will really help us in our own journey with God. The first is this, that one way we know we have truly heard the word is that it leads to confession and ultimately thankful worship. One way that we truly know we've heard the word is it leads to confession and thankful worship. Now, both in their case and in our case here, we're not talking about condemnation. We're not talking about guilt and shame. We're talking about conviction, where uh, in our day, the Holy Spirit would come upon us as we hear the word, uh, the way that the writers of the New Testament talk about it, that the scripture is held up like a mirror. And in that mirror, we see the reflection uh, of ourselves and our own sin and our deep need for Jesus. And we see the reflection of the holiness and the perfection of God. And we see where our sin and God's holiness don't match up. And God, in his kindness, brings us to repentance. So this, in many ways, was, was the Old Testament version of that. They were clearly hearing, uh, again, in New Testament language, the way the writers were talking about, they were cut to the heart. They heard uh, their sins and that their only hope uh, was to go to God for forgiveness. And the same is true today. And the problem with many of us when we hear the word is that we try to run away from that instead of toward it. We can try to explain our sins away, or we can try to make them too philosophical, or we can simply just say, well, I'm not sinning at all. But friends, that is the opposite of what needs to happen when the mirror of Scripture is held up. We need to embrace it. We need to own our lack so that we might fully embrace God's rich and free bounty of mercy and grace that was purchased for us and offered to us in Christ. That's one of the ways that we know that we've heard the word, because it leads to confession and thankful worship because of the forgiveness that he offers us. And let me give you some good news about this church. This is the kind of church where we want to walk in the light together, where we don't want to judge each other. When somebody confesses their sins, this is a safe place. And we can come alongside one another and encourage and say, you know what? Even if my struggle is not exactly the same as yours, boy, I know what it's like to be in that kind of difficulty. How can I help you? How can I encourage you? How can I spur you on toward love and good deeds? That's part of the, the gospel culture of safety that we have here so that we can walk in the light together as we respond to the word. And that is truly something that we need to give thanks and praise to God for because sadly, not all churches are that way. Not all churches are safe for people to confess their sins and 
embrace the forgiveness of Jesus. They should be. I want them to be. God wants them to be. But God has done something unique among us here. And we need to care for that culture, embrace it, just like we embrace the Spirit's convicting work in our life and embrace the grace and mercy of God in every capacity. So that's the first thing I think we can take from this. Now, the second thing has to do with this idea of the Israelites being called out and, and separate from their neighbors. And I think the way I want to think about this would be something like this, that God's people should appropriately separate themselves from the idolatry around them. God's people should appropriately separate themselves from the idolatry around them. Now, in their context, remember, this was about foreign wives. It was about <coughs> the idolatry that came with this intermarrying, and they literally had to separate themselves for this purpose. But in our day, this is going to look a little different. I would like to think of it maybe in a couple of different ways. There's, a, there's an inherent difference that comes from living in the gospel, and also some intentional difference that comes from living in the gospel. By the inherent difference, here's what I mean. That particularly in today's culture, if we are walking with Jesus, walking in the light, seeking to organize our finances in the way that the Bible would talk about, seeking to live out our singleness in the way that the Bible would lead us, uh, the way that we parent, how we work our jobs, everything in a biblical worldview, there's going to be a gospel difference where there's some departure that takes place. But beyond that, sometimes there does have to be uh, an intentional difference. And this is probably going to vary from person to person. Uh, one of the pastors that I came up under years and years ago, when I was first beginning in ministry, he uh, had a history, strong history, uh, of, of severe alcoholism uh, before he met the Lord. And I remember we talked about that, and, and, and he talked about just trying to walk in wisdom uh, himself, just knowing himself and his weakness. And, and I remember him saying something like this to me. He said, you know what? I'm so glad that there are people that go to the bars to try to reach people. But I can't be one of those people because I know myself and I know my weakness and I know my temptations. And so he had to put a little bit of difference there, some intentional difference to say, you know what? I just can't go there. I can't be a part of that. I can't even be around it because I know myself. And sometimes we have to do that. And it, for us, it's not going to be separating from foreign wives but in our own lives, we do have to make some of that separation. And I think the best way to tease this point out is probably going to be for you to reflect on it by yourself, to talk about it uh, in your men's or women's discipleship group, to talk about it in community group, because it's going to be different based on different people's life situation <coughs> and so on. But the principle there of appropriate separation is one that we need to think through. Now, let me also offer this caveat here. This doesn't mean that we don't have any relationships with non-Christians. How in the world are we going to fulfill the Great Commission if that's the route we go? It also doesn't mean that we simply hide in the basement and never go out into the world. Can't fulfill the Great Commission that way either. So we got to think through this. But again, this is one of those things where there's going to be an inherent difference and an intentional difference. And we, with the wisdom of God and the Word of God and the people of God, are going to need to tease out what that looks like in our own lives. So that's a little bit from the first few verses. Now, let's take a look at verse 4. 
On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. So the third principle there indicates to us a little bit of a shift in this passage. We have a little bit of, uh, here's a couple things we can learn about our relationship with God in those first two points. But then now we're beginning a new track in which we're going to get multiple pictures of some important attributes of God. And so the, the first one that I would give us here is that our God has a name that is above every name, and he is the Lord. Now, I remember when I was a kid, I was really into basketball. That's really hard to believe uh, at this point, but it was really true. And I remember growing up, like so many kids in my generation, Michael Jordan was my absolute favorite player. And I never got to see him play live, but man, I've watched enough of it on TV to fill multiple lifetimes. But there was just something about when the crowd would chant, Jordan, Jordan, and everybody was so excited about it, that there was this just energy that filled the room and, and filled any environment where he was, because at that time, he was the greatest basketball player. I mean, there were some other really good ones in that generation, but more or less, everybody kind of agreed he had the name that was above every name. And clearly, our God, the God of the Bible, has that name above all of the little g-gods in this world and throughout all of history. That's why it's such a refrain in the Old Testament to see this kind of language. You see it repeated time and time and time again. You see it, uh, for example, Psalm 8.1. You see it, excuse me, this phrase almost uh, specifically quoted uh, in, in Philippians 2.9. Is it's talking about Jesus, that, that he would be given the name that is above every name. And part of the reason why that was so important is, is also what we saw at the beginning of this passage, that they had brought in all these other false gods and diluted their worship, and so they needed to be reminded time after time after time that there is one God, no other, and his name is above all of the other gods. And to be honest, I think that we need to be reminded of that as well. Now, that's one of those truths we cognitively know. You could probably teach it as well. But every day, all day long, we are faced with bowing down to other little g-gods. Could be what somebody else thinks about us. It could be finding our identity in uh, our place in the home or in the workplace or how much money is in our bank account or where our kids go to school. We are uh, inundated with invitations to step away from the one true God. And it is good to be reminded, just like these ancient Israelites, that he is the Lord and he alone. And listen, our lives may just go better when we are synced up and in tune with that note that is played throughout all of history. So that's why you see it in this passage. That's why you see it in so many passages. There is one God. He is the Lord. He is the king, the ruler, the sovereign over everything. And we need to organize all of our lives around him. But that's not all. Take a look at this. It said, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, 
with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. So the next principle there, next truth about God, is that he is also the creator and sustainer of the universe. Now, you guys know, I love the Bible. This church loves the Bible. We'll never step away from the Bible. But one of the things that we often neglect in our study of God, so to speak, is the testimony of creation. Uh, I think Calvin called it the great theater of God's glory. And so particularly at this season, we're kind of coming into the fall now. The leaves are beginning to change. We're really kind of experiencing some, some different kinds of weather. We need to take full advantage of all of God's glory that we see on display. And we need to be reminded very practically that if he can hold the entire universe in place, well, he can certainly hold our little universe in place as well. If he can care for every bird and every bee and every flower and every tree, he can certainly care for us. And as they would have been reminded that morning of the greatness and the glory of God, or that day rather, uh, as they were hearing about this, we need to be reminded of this as well. I mean, there's plenty of scriptures that point to this. One of my favorites is uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Very long passage sweeping in its uh, scope. But let me give you just a couple of verses here to really drive this point home. Pick it up in verse 25. It says this, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out by their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So just like the, the Levites were leading them in worship in Nehemiah's day, here Isaiah is communicating to God's people this connection between the creation and the creator that it is almost like a divine post-it note to remind us of the greatness of who he is and what he's done that ultimately finds its apex in the Lord Jesus. So one way we can apply this text, spend some time outside, look around, look up, marvel at the greatness and the glory of God and who he is and what he has done. Let's take a look at verse 7. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Now, a couple of points there. First one being that our God chooses and changes people. Now, if you grew up around the church, you are familiar with Abraham. In fact, you might know his little greatest hit. Father Abraham had many sons, right arm, left arm. You remember that one? Well, the, 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 the good news and the bad news about Abraham in, in church life is that I think many times we whitewash it. 
that we think about Abraham and, you know, he's got a big white beard and all the cartoon drawings and always a big smile because he's got all these many sons, as the song says. But here's the reality. When God first came to him and his name was Abram, I think history would tell us this guy was just a pretty rough pagan. He wasn't out there looking for God and trying to do good things, and then God kind of topped off his spiritual gas tank. This guy was a rough pagan just like anybody else would have been. But God chose him. And when God gets involved, everything changes. See, God has the right to do that. He has the power to do that. He changes people from the inside out. And some of you who are listening here today, you might not even be Christians yet. And you might look at yourself and you might say, you know what? I've made such a mess of my life. How in the world could God do anything with somebody like me? Listen, if he can work in Abram's life, turn him into Abraham and then use him the way that he did, there is hope for you, friend, because it's not about you. It's about the one who chooses and the one who changes. And so Abraham can give us great hope today. And let me tell you, beyond that, Abraham was clearly a pointer to the gospel because in the midst of that story, are we not all like Abraham? We're just out there wandering. The Bible says that all like sheep had gone astray, that none of us were seeking God, and then God comes along and chooses and changes and saves and makes us more like Jesus for the rest of our lives. We're all Abraham in our own. And part of me wonders if part of the reason why he is included in this story of the grand narrative of God is to just highlight the immense power that God has to change people. He changes this nation. They've gone from letting their city lay in disarray for 150 years, basically. Now the wall's been rebuilt. Now the people are being rebuilt, and they are changing. And we need to take hope in that. We need to be encouraged by that today as well. Now, also, I want to point out here just very briefly that he, he says here at the end of this verse, look back at it, it says, and you have kept your promise. So this is the covenant that he made to Abraham for you are righteous. And the construction of that Hebrew there, you have done this because you are this indicates another principle for us about God, that he is both righteous and he is a promise keeper. Now, this word here for righteous, it means rightness. It means rightness in every possible way. Friends, the God of the Bible has never had a wrong thought. He's never had a wrong deed. He's never made a mistake. And his essence and character is holiness. And that's why he keeps his promises. That's why we can trust him. That's why we can trust his word. And in a day and age where we are surrounded by people and politicians, for example, who can't seem to keep a promise for more than five minutes, we need to be continually reminded of the reliability and the power and the sufficiency of the God of the Bible. They hold up Abraham here in the covenant that God makes to him as an example of that, and then they root it in God's character. 
And I just can't help but think that there's not at least a few of us that are listening to this today that need to be reminded of the promise-keeping nature of God. Because there have been so many things, dreams deferred, hopes that never came to pass, ways that you just feel broken down in a variety of capacities. Friend, you need to know that God has not forgotten you, that he is for you in Christ, and that he is righteous and right, and he will keep his promises to us. Think about all that he's given us in Jesus. Think about all the mercy and the grace and the kindness that he's poured out for us in Christ. Think about his trustworthy word that he has given us on which we can build our lives. Friends, this is the God that we have, and this is the God that we need. Now, on the home stretch here, he reminds us of a couple more aspects of God's character as well. Take a look at this. It says, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they had acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before him, so that they went through in the, on the midst of the dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. So principally here, to put it in a nutshell, what he's saying is, our God is a worker of miracles, a deliverer of his people, and a destroyer of his enemies. Let me just say that again, that he's a worker of miracles, a deliverer of his people, and a destroyer of his enemies. And the story that, that, that the Levites are clearly using here to call all of this back to the Israelites' mind is the story of the Exodus. <clears throat> and what a great story that is. It's true, by the way, about how God brought judgment against Pharaoh and all of his minions and how he delivered his people. And out of that people eventually came these people. And then out of this people eventually came the Lord Jesus. And again, they are using these stories to remind them of central truths in their spiritual lineage. So let me just talk about that just for a second. Because that storytelling, let me call it redemptive storytelling, that is an important spiritual skill. That's an important tool that we need in our toolbox as fathers and as mothers and as families that we want to be telling and telling and telling the story of God, the stories of God, as they indicate the faithfulness of God throughout all generations. And that is, it's a very important thing for us to be able to do. It's an important thing that we do in kids ministry. We need to be about this and persist in this because look at the fruit that this bears. Now, in addition to this, I was actually counseling somebody this week that was going through a hard time. We were talking about some things, and I said, listen, one of the things you need to be doing is you need to be keeping a journal. I don't know if this is even really going to make a big deal to you, but it really helps me because as I write down my prayers and I think about all the particular ways that the Lord has helped and intervened, uh, over the course of my life and my ministry, 
it, it serves as this redemptive narrative similarly to this to show me that God is not going to give up on me. And the person I was counseling, I was telling me, you need to do this because you're going through a hard time. And friends, I think this is something that would help us. I think this is something that would remind us because every day as we're inundated with all the ways that people fail, we need to be reminded of the ways that the one true person succeeds. And in this story of the Exodus, you see miracle after miracle after miracle. You see God deliver his people and you see him destroy his enemies. And in the midst of that, how in the world can we not see the gospel? How can we not see the miraculous life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus? Who else could have lived the perfect life that we should have lived? No one but Jesus. Who else could have died the completely efficacious substitutionary death other than Jesus himself? No one. And who could have been gloriously resurrected the way he was other than Christ alone? No one. And so as we think about how God delivered his people in the, in the Old Testament, in the Exodus, we think about how God delivers his people through the gospel. We think about also how he destroyed his enemies. I mean, he dealt with Pharaoh in a decisive way by closing up the Red Sea that he had parted. But has he not also dealt with our spiritual Pharaoh, our enemy, our, uh, the one that, that we were held captive under with Satan? He has ultimately defeated him and disarmed him and made a, as the New Testament says, a public embarrassment of him by counseling our debt and nailing it to the cross. So friends, as we look through these classic stories, as we see this redemptive narrative that the Levites are telling these ancient Israelites, we're never too far from the ultimate redemptive narrative in the story of Jesus. And we need to always be making that connection. Now there's one final thing that I want to point out here before we go. It says this, it says, by a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day. And by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way that they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke with them from heaven and you gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and you brought water from them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to them. So the final truth here, is that our God leads and provides for his people. So this, again, this is their journey toward the promised land. And just all of the reminders of how God heard their cry. He met their need for, for food, for water. Eventually they got where they were going, though the difficulty was significant. But the point that I want to make here is that God leads and provides for his people. And some of us who may be listening to this today, you may feel like you just are wandering around. You may wonder, where's my life going? You feel like we've been on pandemic pause for an indefinite period of time, some of us. And you need to know 
that the Lord is still with you in Christ. He is still leading you in Christ. He is still making you more like Christ. And he didn't give up on those ancient Israelites. He is not going to give up on you. He's also providing for you in the way that he provided for his children so long ago. And again, as we hear this in its context and we see this as part of their worshipful response to the hearing of the word of God, as those ancient Israelites would have heard this and time after time and example after example, they would have said, yes, that's our God. That's our God. That's why we follow him and we don't follow Baal or some of the other gods of their nations. They would have been reminded. They would have been encouraged of all the ways that God had led and provide, provided for them. And friends, as we hear this today on this side of Calvary, how can we not hear this and not hear the gospel? Because of all the needs that we have, whether they be food or finance, the ultimate need that we have is a relationship with God through Christ alone. He has provided the way that we can know him through Jesus. And some of us who are watching this today, that connects with you, that surprises you, and it calls to you and says, I need what he's talking about. Friends, the Lord will accept anyone from anywhere if they will turn from their sins and trust in Christ. And so the ask that we put before you today, if that resonates with you and you say, I need to be saved, is that you would admit that you're a sinner, that you would believe in the life, death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and that you would confess your sins and commit to follow him, that you would transfer the leadership of your life over to him. And if that is the stirring in your heart today, then we would ask you just to, to pray right where you are and then shoot us an email, refugefranklin at gmail.com. We want to help you as you begin your journey with God. And for those who've already made that turn, friends, is there not so much good news in this passage? Some of that practical help that we get there at the beginning and then truth after truth after truth of the greatness and the might and the glory of God on display. So this would be my encouragement to you, that as we end this message, that we would take just a moment to marvel. That we would take just a moment to think about all that we've seen and all that we've learned in this passage. That we would take just a moment to be reminded that he is the Lord and his name is above every name, that he is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, that he is a God who chooses and changes people like Abram and makes him Abraham, that he is the same God who is righteous and right and he keeps his promises when no one else can, that he is the God who works miracles, delivers his people, destroys his enemies, and leads and provides for his own. Friends, that is the God we need. That's the God we have. That is the God of the Bible. He's made himself known to us through Christ. So let's take a moment just to mark.
Let's pray. God, as we are reminded of your greatness and your glory, we pray that you would change us and shape us and make us more like Christ. We pray that you would minister to all of our needs and that we would be more fully and further convinced of who you are and your greatness because of this time that we spent together in your word. Do all this now for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name.